And now to introduce our speakers, we are joined by two today. Uh, first, uh, Dr. Colleen Casey. She's Associate Clinical Director for the Providence, Oregon Region Senior Health Program. Dr. Casey received her bachelor's, master's, and doctorate in nursing from OHSU and completed postgraduate work at the University of Washington in geriatrics. She also maintains a small clinical practice in outpatient geriatrics with Providence Elder Place. Dr. Casey's role at Providence includes identifying ways to streamline and improve care of older adults. She helps advance initiatives to disseminate geriatric evidence-based practices, equipping us providers and our interdisciplinary teams with the clinical tools, the education, and the supports that we need. She has had a particular focus on the region's efforts to reduce falls. And one role uh, within that has been principal investigator of the SAFER project, which seeks to improve post-ED follow-up care for seniors age 75 plus who've had a fall-related ED visit. Dr. Casey is also the co-director and lead faculty of the Providence Geriatric Mini Fellowship. She is recognized nationally for her work and has published numerous articles in her field of geriatrics. She is joined today um, by Dr. Jamie Colley, a practicing physical therapist at Providence Northeast Rehab. Jamie received her bachelor's degree in exercise science from Linfield College and graduated from Pacific University with her doctorate of physical therapy. Jamie leads clinical practice development for Oregon's 40 plus rehab clinics in the areas of fall prevention and balance. And in addition, she works with Providence's senior health program as a clinical liaison, helping to connect rehab clinical practice to primary care clinical practice. And again, particularly in the areas of geriatrics and fall prevention. We are delighted to be joined by these two absolute experts, and I will turn it over to Drs. Casey and Colley. Thank you. Thank you so much, much Dr. Lutcher. It's so uh, great to be here with all of you today, and we're very excited to be able to uh, come back. I think Dr. Hodges and I uh, spoke to you about almost five years ago uh, about falls, and we really do have uh, a a bit of an update in the sense that we've gained some new awareness and new appreciation for some special considerations and we'll be talking about that with you today. So we're um, hoping today that it serves as a real call to arms. I'd like this to be um, a call to action for all of us. We know that uh, you all see people who fall regularly in your practice and yet it's often very easy for the patients to diminish a fall and also as providers for us to get swept up in the myriad of other clinical issues uh, and sort of uh, sweep falls a bit under the rug, um, so to speak. And so uh, this hopefully today will help all of us to re-raise awareness of falls as a true epidemic among older adults. And then we'll also try to be as practical as possible in applying a lens to look at fall risk factors and then how best to incorporate some of that evidence base uh, towards interventions that can really work and be woven into a very busy practice. Um, we'd like to also share with you a few of the resources that we've developed uh, in the region as well, um, hopefully accessible to, to all of you. So what kind of a problem is this? Well, it's, it's a big problem. Currently, there's around three people every hour who die from a fall. 
And by 2030, that number is going to increase up to seven, so it'll more than double. So someone falls just about every second of every day. And fewer than one in four actually will discuss that with their family or in particular with a provider. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And in addition to falls being the number one cause of hip fractures, not surprisingly, it's also the number one cause of traumatic brain injuries. And so I think, you know, it's impressive to see these numbers, but I would also ask that you just think of either a patient or a family member who has had a fall or for whom you're worried about falling. I know that a little over a year ago, um, I helped a woman in my parish who had fallen on a slick floor at the entryway to our church. Um, she, it turned out, had broken her femur. Um, uh, pretty in extensively. Um, she lived on her own, was unmarried, and it took six months for her to go through surgery, rehab, um, extensive rehabilitation, and then finally graduating to an assisted living, but eventually returning home. And her life was really turned upside down for those six to seven months. I also um, have acquaintances who lost their mom and their grandma um, to a fall that she had downtown in a church as she slipped coming out of a meeting and hit her head on a number of stairs. Um, she was hospitalized for a few days with a traumatic brain injury uh, and died shortly thereafter, obviously impacting that family forever. So think of the person who you know, uh, who has you know been impacted by a fall and keep that in mind as we discuss this topic today. So every day there are roughly 74 deaths from a fall and that's nationally. And I just want you to think about that in comparison to uh, what gets a lot of attention, which is the opioid epidemic and crisis, which of course is a true crisis. Um, if you look at opioid prescription overdoses uh, combined with benzodiazepine overdoses, that's roughly about 82 deaths per day. So within range of the falls per day, um, people dying of falls per day. And as a point of comparison, the CDC budget for opioids has been roughly $75 million um, for their total effort, including prescription and non-prescription. And that compares, that $75 million compares to $2 million that they've spent on CDC fall efforts. Um, so again, incumbent upon us to raise the bar, raise awareness, and to begin really integrating this into um, more reliably into our care. We're helped in this process uh, in part by a national initiative that's being uh, engineered by the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, as well as the Age-Friendly Health System. And it's called, uh, I'm sorry, the John A. Hartford Foundation. And it's called the Age-Friendly Health System. And the Age-Friendly Health System has really devised a fairly simplistic way to think about the complexity of geriatric care. So essentially they've said, if we can do these four things well, we will have raised the bar on providing better care to older adults. Our Providence Senior Health Team was part of the um, original pioneering health systems and the four domains as you can see here include not just mobility which 
for which falls would fall under, but also medication, as in high-risk medications, mentation, which is a slightly unusual term, but includes cognitive impairment, delirium, et cetera, and then what matters. And what matters uh, is truly not just about completing polls or advanced directives, but really identifying what's important for your person and, and really spans all ages. But for older adults, this becomes a more essential conversation. So looking at our Providence uh, specific numbers, uh, just to emphasize the point uh, of where we are, the, these are the admissions to the ED for fall related visits uh, most recently from this past year. Um, despite the pandemic, the numbers mirror other years, um, so there wasn't some large uh, aberrancy. And in the past, uh, five years ago, the fall-related ED visits comprised about 10% of the total ED visits, but that's grown to roughly about 14%. And you can see for those who are our oldest old in our practices, those who are 80 and over, um, roughly one in four ED visits is for a fall. Most concerning are the folks, almost a thousand patients of these 9,000 who had two or more visits and sometimes as many as six, eight, 10 visits for a fall. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. When is a fall related uh, ED visit, for example, perhaps a harbinger of something more going on for that person? I'll also just point out, even though we typically talk about older adults defined as those 65 and older, um, what hasn't been included traditionally in our numbers is this kind of lagging group of the 60 to 64, and they comprise almost 5,000 falls annually. And so from a risk identification perspective, really important to think about the rising risk and how we can, can better address and intervene on their behalf. So who are these people? Well, in a traditional medical paradigm, it's really um, common that we would be thinking by disease category, right? The person has cancer, they might have heart failure. Um, likely, it's not impossible that they would have multiple conditions going on at the same time. And so I um, wanted to just draw your attention to the fact that for many of our folks, aging folks that do have chronic diseases, they all are at heightened fall risk for one reason or another, and sometimes for combined factors. I'll ask that you pay special attention to those folks for whom you're worried about cognitive impairment, because these people have eight times the risk of falling. They fall eight times more often and off and usually suffer more fractures. Uh, and inc that includes then a higher mortality rate if they have fractured a hip, for example, in that first year. So rather than the 20% mortality rate common to the general population of older adults, uh, the mortality rate for those with cognitive impairment nears about 50%. You can see also that for those discharged from the hospital, this is newer research, that falls are the third leading cause of readmission. So those first 30 days coming out of the hospital are really pivotal to be making sure that there's home safety plans in place, uh, awareness of new medications that have been added or changed. And if a person was admitted for either a fall or has cognitive impairment, the, that number increases to the second leading cause of readmission. So keeping these people on your radar uh, becomes especially important. So, what is the true cost of falls beyond you know, the cost of an actual hospitalization, which ranges from $30,000 to upwards of $50,000 or more if they fracture something? Well, 
clearly for the um, folks like Nancy and Gail, who I discussed earlier, it's a huge personal cost for them personally, for their families, often represents a real loss of independence. Uh, not uncommon that someone would need to a higher need to move to a higher level of care and that stat is from Oregon, but it translates nationally uh, and I want to underscore um, the the uh, occurrence of the fear of falling. Um, so once someone has fallen even a single time, their trepidation about falling again can become very preoccupying and can lend itself to a cycle of decline. Um, we've had folks even like Alex Trebek or Mitt Romney um, more recently who have fallen. And so the fact that they've fallen once makes them two thirds more likely to fall again. And that fear of falling can be intervened upon, uh, including by physical therapy, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but is definitely something to suss out with your patient to identify just how worried are they about falling. So let's take this back into our clinical practice and we'll do a clinical scenario uh, to just more fully understand how we might kind of address and tackle this. Um, this becomes important because we want to be thinking about falls as a chronic longitudinal disease, something that in the past has really been treated more episodically with Mr. H falling likely getting stitches as you can see here and then going to primary care having the stitches removed and sent on his way. We want to be thinking about falls where we can begin this relationship with Mr. H so that that fall and the suture removal then becomes a matter of a discussion point so we can open the door to really intervening upon his risk factors. So for Mr. H who is 79 years old he had a wellness visit not long ago and was determined to be pretty high risk, mid-range. We'll talk about the score soon. He fell off his ladder, which his wife doesn't like him to be on, and he's walking quite slowly with a cane. His blood pressure, as you can see, uh, is under 120, and he believes that his blood pressure is very good. He likes it right in this range. He's on four antihypertensives, and you do measure his orthostatics, and he's dropped. he drops withstanding by 18 points, and he reports a history of one fall in the past year. So how have you gotten this score? Well, you've gotten the score um, by using the steady screen. This is common to Providence and has become pretty widely adopted nationally across the country as part of the CDC's Stopping Elderly Accidents, Deaths and Injuries um, endeavor. So the steady screen is based on 14 points. There are 12 questions, and if you answer any of the first three questions affirmatively, then you are asked to answer the additional questions. And what's really important is that if you have someone answer beyond just the numerical score, you can really determine where their risk factors are. So for example, anyone answering uh, from question two through seven, which spans from feeling unsteady, doing some furniture surfing, pushing, needing to push up with your hands from a chair, those people could be real candidates uh, for an intervention around physical therapy, for example. And Jamie's going to be talking about that a little bit later. So using this tool after any new fall or at least annually, and typically in the Providence system, we do about 30,000 screens, uh, steady screens a, a year. And of those, roughly one in three are considered to be high risk. So what do we do with that score? Well, the CDC algorithm, as 
as you might imagine, becomes very complicated. <laughs> and so based on clinical experience and based on um, their work, uh, we've really distilled it down to three primary risk stratification categories. Um, the first is the lower risk folks. And just because someone is low risk does not mean they have no risk. Uh, we've seen patients that have a pretty profound bradycardia but are otherwise healthy, but have needed cardiology intervention, for example. So targeting interventions based on specific risk factors becomes very important. I'll show you these resources a little bit later on, but we do have after visit summary information that can be accessed um, through EPIC and through our fall risk management website. The medium risk are those folks that generally are scoring between the four and the eight, and that includes Mr. H who scored a seven. For these folks, they would uh, warrant orthostatic measurement, um, an evaluation of their gait, and then also referring to PharmD for any high-risk medications that you would be noticing on their med list with a follow-up over time for identification of additional risk factors. And then those that are highest risk, which I'll talk about that group a little bit later on. Basically, you'd address all of the same things, but then you would also really have your radar uh, on for whether they're frail and whether they have any com uh, cognitive impairment. So for Mr. H, we'd be looking at his medication list, and there's a few things that call to our attention. He is orthostatic, and he's also bradycardic. He's lost some weight, and you detect AFib. You notice that his gait is very unsteady, and that he's reporting that his knees hurt as baseline, not just from falling. And he's having a really hard time pushing off the chair. Um, you don't, you have not tested his vitamin D, but it was tested in the past and is slightly low. Um, you do not have reason to believe that he has any cognitive impairment. And his wife reports that the most important thing to him is to stay in his home as long as possible. So again, just going back to our risk stratification, we have an algorithmic approach that essentially for someone who is high risk would warrant looking at his gait, which we've now done, checking his orthostatics, which we've also managed to do in this initial visit, and then scanning for any high risk medications that could be addressed. So let me just briefly talk about orthostatics in the sense that this is often missed and the old style uh, approach of doing lying, sitting, and standing has been uh, readdressed and updated with only a lying down and standing measurement. Um, so lying down for five minutes, standing at one minute. Typically, we see this done most successfully when a, med when a medical assistant um, has the person lying down pretty immediately. They describe to the patient why and how this is going to proceed, and then they end up doing their other rooming procedures as part of the person lying down, and then they have them stand at one minute. Um, the literature suggests that if you do a seated measurement, it can sometimes mask and miss orthostasis in up to two-thirds of patients. And as people age, they have more prevalence of orthostasis. So you want to make sure that you capture that as much as possible. Your therapy colleagues can also help with this because they also are able to take orthostatics. Making sure that if the medical assistant does the timed up and go, which is fine, that you're also having a chance to look at either their gait or at least have them stand up from a chair. Just having someone struggle to get up from a chair can give a lot of clinical information. And oftentimes we're rushed and it's hard to get everything in, um, but just asking them 
for a few seconds. You know, just show me show me if you can stand up and down from the chair twice. That would be really helpful for me to know. Making sure that you see notice if they have any sway, if when they do take steps, there's any inconsistency in their length of step or shuffling. And then, of course, if you identify any antalgic gait um, from pain or uh, any other type of, of deficit. So the good news is that there are many more modifiable risk factors than there are that can't be modified. And so what we really like to focus on are those that can be modified. Um, these include the things that I've mentioned, as well as some additional areas like assistive devices, high-risk medications. And I would also just point out that alcohol use is on the rise for older adults, in particular in continuing care retirement communities, where sometimes the communities are, are sold they do marketing around having happy hours and it's sort of a social collateral um, that folks have drinks uh, to, to get together and to be social. This has been a bit quaffed by COVID, um, but just to have on your radar. So in terms of high-risk medications, we really want to be thinking um, about the overall burden of medications. You can see here we have someone who takes medication from 42 different pills, uh, and this is unfortunately not uncommon. We also want to believe that uh, basically any medication that uh, is offered uh, has the potential for side effects and often we see a cascading effect where one side effect is then treated by another medication that then has additional side effects. And we'll also think about the total cumulative anticholinergic load as well. So for Mr. H, um, in looking at the JNC-8, and I know there's some debate around that, but essentially um, from a geriatric perspective, uh, given his CKD, we would believe that he could tolerate a blood pressure as high as in the 140s. Um, we know the first line agents to be um, those that are listed. And then uh, the clonidine is actually on the beers list uh, because it has a very significant increased risk of orthostatic hypotension. He's not regularly followed by a cardiologist and doesn't remember why he was put on it. So we're going to enlist our help from the PharmD in our clinic. And over a, over a period of uh, a few months, phone calls, visits, um, we're going to proceed where we are able to taper off the clonidine, perhaps taper the atenolol because he is bradycardic, and he hasn't had any RVR. Um, consider splitting the lisinopril to BID dosing so that it has more uh, steady state effect. And we'll wait and decide whether or not he really needs that hydrochlorothiazide. We really wanna emphasize to him that he needs to stay well hydrated, which his wife uh, reports he notoriously doesn't drink much water because of his urinary issues. What else do we want to do? Well, he is complaining of this pain and he reports that he's never been offered or has wanted to take anything reliably um, for pain medication except some PRN tramadol. We know tramadol not to be a great medication for him, both because of um, the cognitive effects potential and also for his CKD. It's not uncommon that older adults do suffer from pain. So we wanna schedule the Tylenol to be at least TID. He can tolerate up to three grams daily, um, but often you can start at just 500 TID, as well as non-medication interventions like ice, heat, topicals, that sort of thing. And from an incontinence BPH perspective, you could work your way into having the conversation about whether he might be willing to do some bladder training and consider tapering off the higher dose of the 0.8 Tamsulosin. While it's not on the Beer's drug and doesn't have anticholinergic properties, uh, 
it it is highly orthostatic uh, and we typically see a lot of folks suffering the adverse effect of orthostasis on that medication. We could be thinking about pelvic health PT as well as just general bladder health in, uh, in the long run. And this will obviously take some time. So let's just talk briefly about anticholinergic burden. And thinking about anticholinergic burden, um, those that I have highlighted are not necessarily the drugs that he's on, but it's the ones that we commonly see and get questions about. Things that are used for sleep, um, things that are put on at a PRN basis, but then are adopted uh, and taken more regularly, bladder drugs, et cetera. And what we like to be thinking about is the cumulative burden of these so that if someone goes to the drugstore when they get a cold and ends up picking up uh, you know, some sort of decongestant, that that can really tip their scales if they're on any number of these to get started. So making them aware that if they start to be more confused, begin to have urinary issues, uh, you can see that the effects of anticholinergic burden are pretty wide ranging. So let's talk about vitamin D and bone health. So essentially there's a lot of debate in the literature on this, but the bottom line is, don't test unless it's indicated. Uh, about 50% of people 70 and older will be deficient on just 1,000 units a day. So use vitamin D3 and aim for between 2 and 3,000. They say 2 and 4,000 from all sources, but there isn't a lot of vitamin D um, in, except in fortified food. And not only does the D level itself uh, been shown to reduce fall risk in many studies, it increases muscle strength and does decrease sway as well. Now, the uh, evidence has been debatable in part because of the heterogeneity of the studies and because many of the studies have actually focused on um, folks that do not fall, have no fall history, don't have osteoporosis, and the studies tend to have highly variable dosing regimens um, or variable treatment durations. So um, the party line is that it's actually still worthwhile. We're going to start Mr. H on 2000 daily. Um, make sure that he, uh, from an osteoporosis perspective, is covered because as a male who has fallen, he is at high risk. Uh, and the National Osteoporosis Foundation would recommend uh, ordering a DEXA. And then we're going to talk to him and begin to have a conversation about his willingness to do physical therapy and have a home safety assessment. He's a little resistant at first, and actually we would want him medically stabilized before we send him to PT. Uh, but he's open to this, and so we're going to revisit this over over time. And last but not least, it's the question and special consideration of anticoagulation. So generally speaking, benefits of anticoagulation outweigh the risk even in people who fall. Uh, an older study that uh, is, is well regarded and very often referred to uh, from 1999 indicates that if someone were taking warfarin, they would have to fall almost 300 times per year to outweigh the treatment. And with the newer invention of the DOACs, those post-fall survival, survival rates are even improved. So we would want to uh, start anticoagulation uh, in concert with probably a conversation with our PharmD um, and renally dose the apixaban would probably be my my um, my best intervention. Um, many folks, the literature uh, is well founded that many folks tend to be undercoagulated because of our own fears of their, them falling. And I've just pointed out the um, what is an epic tends to be the MDRD, and so. Um, 
be thinking about renally dosing using the Cockroft Golf, which tends to be a little more conservative and can really um, help us do some renal dosing adjustments. And again, working with our PharmD. So all of the things that we've discussed for Mr. H have been uh, based in the evidence. Unfortunately, the American Geriatric Society and the British Geriatric Society have not done an updated overview of the guidelines uh, since 2010, but we can see that the levels of evidence range from A to C, and there have been strong studies within each of these areas that do suggest intervention even for the levels of C, but as a composite, um, the, the ones who are listed as C have not necessarily um, born strong in the meta-analyses. Uh, so you can see that with levels A, we've got uh, even vitamin D up there, as well as physical therapy and home safety with very strong evidence, as well as very strong evidence for vision impairment, cardiac management, and high-risk medications. Some of the newer evidence, which uh, looked at a large grouping of clinical trials and included a number of randomized clinical trials and over 40,000 participants, uh, revealed that oftentimes looking at injurious falls, the IF is injurious falls, that you can really decrease the odds of having an injurious fall by up to 88% with a multi-component intervention. And so that means thinking about, you know, footwear, eyewear, physical therapy, high-risk medications, etc. So from a population health perspective, this is absolutely the right thing to do is to pay attention to falls. Again, just emphasizing that it really should be treated as a longitudinal disease um, woven into visits or with dedicated visits. And this is in support of the triple aim. Mr. H's family is thrilled that you're paying such close attention and also thrilled that he's able to lose some medications. So he is highly satisfied as is his family. Um, you can also, if you prevent a hospitalization, right there you've saved quite a bit of money for, for the health system at large. So thinking about a very busy clinical practice and just wanting to make sure that you have in your in your mind about how you might strategize to prioritize these interventions. You can't do it all at once, nor should you. And so, you know, this is just sort of a rough draft of how you might think about who you would refer to, your team and your partners, after the fall, how you would prioritize various uh, medications that you would be tapering or stopping, what you might get started, and then what type of patient education uh, you would be supporting the patient and family, including with the nurse. And if the nurse doesn't have a lot of fall-related experience, we have a lot of resources that we can provide to them to get them up to speed uh, after you know just an hour or so of some, some education on their behalf. In terms of patient resources, this is from our fall risk management website, and you can see here that we have a whole section devoted to patient handouts. We don't want to pepper him with handouts, but most likely as he's contemplating physical therapy might give him the chair rise exercise. Oftentimes it's really illustrative to show someone, oh, I can't rise from a chair, so I probably need some help getting, getting better in that respect. And of course, giving him the postural hypotension along with the other AVS materials that you might see to be uh, think would be appropriate. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to Jamie and she'll um, move us into a conversation about exercise and therapy interventions. Great. Great. Thanks, Colleen. Um, so as mentioned before, I'm a physical therapist with Providence Rehab and with the Senior Health Program, and I'm going to talk about exercise and therapy interventions for fall risk reduction. Next slide, please. So uh, let's start with 
who benefits uh, from physical therapy when you're thinking about exercise interventions. And um, certainly patients like Mr. H who are medium to high risk to fall um, and have some balance and comorbidities um, and so need a little bit more skilled intervention from a professional would be appropriate to refer to PT. Uh, Colleen mentioned the questions two through seven on the study as a good uh, trigger for yourself to think about physical therapy in the because those questions questions are so physically based. Um, as well, patients that just need one-to-one -one instruction or feedback for one reason or another, whether that's cognitive impairment or fear of falling, um, those patients are appropriate for us as well. So when a patient has pain, um, like Mr. H, that's uh, impairing their mobility and their ability to exercise, therapists can be helpful in adapting the exercise um, so that we're not exacerbating pain um, and still finding ways to mobilize. Uh, as also mentioned, uh, pelvic floor issues are appropriate for pelvic floor physical therapy. Um, certainly patients with vestibular issues do really well with therapy. The vestibular system is one of the primary sensory systems for balance, and um, so those patients benefit greatly. And then osteoporosis is another uh, thing I would think about when referring to PT. Uh, those patients usually need a little more feedback on posture and safety with exercise so that we're not um, doing any harm with the exercise. Uh, Providence has over 40 clinics, outpatient clinics around Oregon and Southwest Washington, and most of those clinics have um, what we call a fall champion. So a therapist who's uh, decided that they have a passion for falls and is skilled at offering falls and balance focused visits. Um, and if you include on your referrals um, that the patient is at risk to fall and that that's what you're uh, either by diagnosis or in the comments saying that you'd like a fall risk assessment, it helps us get those patients to the right therapist. Next slide, please. So this is just a graphic sort of how you to help you kind of think about how exercise prescription might work with your patients. So those low risk patients at the bottom are going to be the majority and they can generally do um, more traditional exercise and classes in the community. They're cognitively intact and don't have uh, few or any balance problems. And then there in the middle, you'll see um, patients that could go to something more formal uh, like Tai Chi, which we'll talk about in a moment, or physical therapy. And um, they are also generally cognitively intact and only have a few balance problems. At the very top, you'll see uh, the medium to high risk, needing one-to-one -one instruction or cognitively impaired coming, uh, coming in for skilled PT. Next slide, please. So how much exercise do your patients need? Uh, the World Health Organization says that uh, middle-aged and older adults need at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise uh, per week. And um, the nice thing about this is it can be anything uh, that is motivating to the patient, whether that's getting out on the golf course or in their garden, um, and it can be broke up over the week however they like. So um, busy schedules um, or low tolerance for exercise um, can be accommodated in, in dividing that exercise however um, they can manage it. As well, the World Health Organization uh, recognizes that we need muscle strengthening activities a couple times a week. And these can be weight-bearing exercises, um, push-ups, lunges, squats, um, or more traditional exercises um, with weight, weight training that you might think of, but things that make the muscles work harder and help us uh, combat the muscle loss we see with aging. Next slide, please. 
So what we do know about exercise intervention and fall risk is that it needs three components to be successful. Um, it needs that aerobic activity, the strengthening activity, but then we also need to throw in some balance and coordination activity. Um, and some exercises such as Tai Chi, which we'll talk about, naturally involve all three of these. Um, so we don't have to think about how to get them all in each week. But um, when we combine all three of these factors of exercise together, we see fall risk go down by about a third. Next slide, please. The other thing to think about with uh, intervention for fall risk and exercise is that uh, the exercise has to be consistent and it has to be progressive. So you've probably sent patients to therapy before and have them do, you know, they did six visits and they leave feeling better um, and moving better, but then they don't stick with those exercises and they come back and see you and um, they're kind of back to where they started. So exercise only works if we continue doing it um, because, because we're constantly aging and constantly fighting that um, strength loss and balance loss that we would see with age. Um, the other tricky thing is that it has to be progressive, so we can't do the same exercise for years um, on end and expect um, ourselves to maintain our strength. Uh, when thinking about exercise dose, we also know that to reduce fall risk, uh, we need to uh, do at least three to four months of exercise. Um, to see that risk reduced. And so when we're talking to patients in therapy about exercise, it's um, it's focused on what we're doing. We're doing this now, but this is also many of these exercises you're doing are going to need to continue as a lifelong practice versus just a one shot uh, fix. Next slide, please. So I mentioned Tai Chi as uh, an exercise naturally involving strength, balance and aerobics. So we get all of those fall risk components in there. Um, and there is a specific form of Tai Chi called moving for better balance that uh, was developed actually here in Oregon by Dr. Lee uh, for older adults and fall prevention. And when done for 24 weeks, a couple times a week for an hour, um, it has shown the ability to reduce fall risk by 50%, as well as increase strength and balance and aerobic capacity, just what we know we need. Um, it also has many other effects as, as do does a lot of exercise in reducing anxiety, depression. Um, tai Chi is low impact, so it's good for patients with arthritis, and it has also shown uh, benefit in patients with neuromuscular disease, such as Parkinson's. There are some uh, promising studies with patients with cognitive impairment and Tai Chi and efficacy there as well. Next slide, please. So when you're thinking about exercise prescription for Mr. H, I think starting with a conversation about readiness, uh, exercise for a lot of our older adults is a behavior change as are many of the fall risk interventions we've talked about today, but um, just opening the question, so can we talk about your exercise and your fall risk and see what might be, um, might be possible there to help reduce your risk. Um, if he is pre-contemplative, he's not considering uh, that behavior change yet, and you're just opening a space for him to um, share with you the barriers that he sees. Um, if he, you know, he may be into the contemplative or preparatory stage and considering the change or taking some initial steps, and I think that's a really nice place to um, have a larger conversation and offer some resources and education. I think when, um, when discussing exercise as well, 
connecting it to something that matters to the patient. So in Mr. H's case, uh, he wants to stay in his home as long as possible. So um, exercise can be one way to help maintain his mobility and strength to do so, as well as it's an opportunity for us to uh, talk about maybe handing off some of those riskier activities, such as the ladder that uh, caused the fall to, to friends or family or um, contract work. Then uh, when you're thinking about uh, where to start with exercise, finding out what the patient can do now. So in Mr. H's case, he estimates that he's doing about 90 minutes a week of gardening and walking. And um, so that's great. All exercise is good exercise, um, but we know that we know a couple things. We need him to do a little bit more to get up to that 150 minutes. And then we also need him to be doing some strength and balance. So I think there's an opportunity there to um, discuss physical therapy for a referral for strength and balance and, and some specific guidance for him, as well as um, encouraging him to increase his activity. And a good rule of thumb is uh, to add no more than 10% a week. That allows uh, patients' tissues to adapt um, so that they adapt to the new load placed on them and we help prevent injury. Um, so in his case, adding maybe 10 minutes of activity uh, per week um, might be a place to start. And the other nice thing about that 10% rule is it, um, it definitely gives us that, it gives patients success and uh, we want them to stick with this exercise long-term. Okay, next slide, please. Um, as Colleen mentioned, we have a fall risk management site and there is a tab there as well for community-based classes. Um, you'll see there, uh, normally you would see there in-person Tai Chi classes listed for around the state. However, with COVID, those are haven't been happening for quite some time. So you'll find a listing of virtual classes right now, um, online videos and DVDs. There's also um, information about Silver and Fit, which is PHP Medicare's contracted um, exercise program where patients can get free gym memberships as well as uh, free videos and virtual classes. Um, there's the Providence Strong for Life class, which is uh, evidence-based class uh, led by older adults um, and comes in you know, easier, moderate, and high-level uh, forms, both live uh, virtual classes and pre-recorded classes as well. Next slide, please. Uh, and our, uh, our other rehab partners, occupational therapists, I think are um, underutilized quite a bit in fall prevention, but they can be very helpful for your patients with cognitive impairment to help assess their functional level and what assistance they may need, um, as well as developing compensatory strategies or um, ADL modifications. And um, when it comes to home safety assessments, the research really points to OT as our, um, our best intervention there. Next slide, please. So uh, home safety assessments and what matters. Uh, Mr. H wants to stay in his home and he is certainly not alone. About three quarters of older adults uh, plan to stay in their home for the rest of their lives. Um, as well, a lot of them have not changed their residence in more than 20 years. So they um, haven't gone into that home necessarily uh, with aging in place in mind. Um, however, you'll see down there the NC, this is from the NCOA's website, um, 62% would like to see what they can do to modify their home to stay there more safely. Um, home safety interventions have good evidence uh, in reducing fall risk, and we see that higher level of evidence uh, up at the 34% with patients who are more frail, have a history of falls, um, who are older, and as I mentioned, when the home safety assessment is done by an occupational therapist. 
Next slide, please. So you can order a home safety assessment in a couple ways. If the patient is homebound, um, you can order it through home health. It's part of their standard of care uh, when they go out. If the patient is not homebound, uh, we have an outpatient home safety assessment program, and this is currently available in the Portland metro area. And I'd recommend it uh, if your patient's at medium to high risk to fall and they um, have not had recent home health, so nobody's been out to look at their home. Uh, you would send an outpatient referral uh, to PT or OT as you normally would, and just in the referral notes state include home safety assessment. Again, thinking about OT for patients with the cognitive, visual, or ADL impairments, and then PT for gait, strength, and balance impairments. Of course, patients can benefit from both of us, and in that case, I would defer to the OT home safety assessment. Next slide, please. Um, so we don't want to forget about vision and footwear. Um, we know that older adults who go barefoot um, or walk in socks or loose fitting, ill fitting shoes fall more and um, they don't just fall slightly more. They fall a thousand times more than their peers with good fitting shoes. Um, so we want to see them in something comfortable that has a heel and a sole and that would include um, over there on the left. You see even a slipper needs to fit well and have some traction. A referral to podiatry certainly is appropriate for pain or sensation issues to make sure that foot is supported and comfortable um, to allow good mobility. And then um, mobility, of course, includes our vision. So regular vision checks um, that we have good corrected eyewear. Our glasses are clean, which I know sounds obvious, but is um, not, not something we're always attending to or our patients are. Um, and sunglasses to help reduce glare when we're coming in uh, from outside. In addition, treating cataracts as soon as possible has some evidence behind it as far as reducing fall risk. Next slide, please. Um, also with vision, we want to think about the multifocal lenses. So uh, when we have multifocal lenses, when we look down at obstacles and curbs, uh, we're in that part of our glasses that would normally be for reading, and that makes the um, the surface blur and as we age we rely more on our vision for balance uh, and particularly if we have some balance issues we might really um, uh, be locked into our vision almost to a fault so uh, for your patients at risk to fall who are outdoor ambulators recommending a single vision pair of distance glasses for outdoors has good efficacy in reducing fall risk next slide please so when thinking about your game plan uh, with Mr. H or any of um, your other patients, thinking about what you could do today in the office. So, um, you know, if they come in an ill-fitting shoes, that might be an opportunity. Um, if it's, you know, recommending a vision check, um, ordering PT or OT or home safety assessments might be something that can happen um, in a week or more. And then um, starting those reduction of high-risk medications uh, can be something that you might start today. Uh, think about what you might do next and then, um, of course, check back in next month and uh, continue on. So really thinking about the game plan as a long longitudinal effort um, versus a one-time intervention. And with that, I'm going to hand the uh, presentation back over to Colleen to kind of wrap us up here. Thanks so much, Jamie. Um, I think it's so helpful to really get uh, information from you as a physical therapist and some of those details uh, that I think as PCPs we can we can kind of miss and helps to better integrate uh, your work with what we're trying to accomplish uh, for the patient. So with our few remaining minutes, uh, what I really want to address 
is this other special consideration where we connect falls with frailty. And uh, I saw in the comments uh, while Jamie was speaking a comment that says this is such an important topic. As a PCP, I get demoralized that even with all of our efforts, there are patients who just keep falling. How much can a holistic approach hope to cure falls? Um, thank you so much for that comment. And I think that this little bit will speak to, to speak to your question and to your comment, which is that sometimes the goalpost we're looking at is not set in the right place, correct? So we're, we're I would encourage you to perhaps for the right patients, stop thinking about curing falls or even preventing falls. Um, that's why we call our program the fall risk management uh, program and not the fall risk prevention program because not all falls can be prevented. And particularly as someone becomes more frail, here you'll see from some recent work uh, in the last few years in looking at, uh, and I'm not going to get into the details of how to define pre-frail pre and frail, but I'm sure you have your imaginations about uh, what, who, who types of patients that fall into those categories. But you can see here that for those patients who are determined to be frail, many of them fall, um, over a third of them fall in the last 12 months, and over half of them are worried about falling. And so as compared to the more robust older adult colleagues, um, they're five times more likely. Um, and there's multiple studies out there that look at um, folks who have disability, um, whether or not they're on fall, uh, fall risk increasing meds and have much higher rates of injurious falls and falls. So this idea of there being a little more to the tip of the iceberg of the fall and really sussing out what is going on for that folks, for that person, particularly if they're presenting to the emergency room repeatedly. So sometimes we need to think about when is falls sort of the canary in the coal mine and we need to be thinking about falls as an inflection point. Might we look at the reversible risk factors, determine that we've done what we can do, and, and that means doing good diligence to get to that point, but then also really thinking about um, do they have cognitive impairment? Is this a marker of further disability and decline as compared to their functional status a year ago? And might we shift the conversation to something um, that involves more of what matters to the patient? How can we be more supportive of them from a social perspective and a care perspective? And even perhaps considering a palliative or hospice approach for that particular patient. We know that 25% of Medicare spending is spent in the last years of life, and often this is for fall-related care. So really using your keen radar and your assessment skills to determine when is fall sort of part of a larger picture of overall morbidity, and when is it something that we really can reverse and intervene, at least on a few fall risk factors. So. Uh, in concert with Jamie, we've been so glad to talk with you today. We hope that we've uh, helped create a sense of more urgency that you can take back to have more urgency with your patients in partnership with them, to be able to think about falls as a longitudinal and chronic disease that can't be solved in a single episodic visit most often, and then how to really believe that um, good patient care and fall-related care is not an exception to the care that we provide, but is sort of the standard of care so that we we can really encourage independence among our older adults and their quality of life for as long as possible. We know that it's uh, geriatrics is a team sport. 
as is primary care. And so it can really be an exemplar of how to do good geriatric care with a good ultimate um, population impact as well. So we thank you so much for your time. We're available to answer any questions with the time we have left. And we also appreciate Dr. Paul's artwork, uh, which, which he's received some, some good press for of late um, to help us illustrate the importance of fall risk factors. Thank you so much. Great, thank you so much for that presentation. A lot of helpful practical information, and I think some of the questions that have come forward have been answered already. As I review some of those, I'll invite the audience to go ahead and put in any other thoughts or questions into our Q&A. And yes, thank you, Dr. Powell, for the great artwork. Um, so um, I guess first off, just a review. Um, thanks for the, the website with so many outstanding resources. And I did put the link in the Q&A there, um, which can also be found under departments and then Providence Medical Group and then the fall risk button under the provider resources. Um, and uh, I also saw, I believe, on one of your slides um, that there are smart phrases within EPIC if you search for Jero fall risk. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. And those those are not uh, system-wide smart phrases. And so the only system-wide smart phrase currently is through the after visit, uh, is through the annual wellness visit. So that's dot fall risk plan. And that, that's a good place to start. Even if you're not doing a wellness visit, you can use it for folks. It has has a good foundational package of, of tools. But yeah, you can search for dot Jero fall risk and access a variety of uh, after visit summary tools, et cetera. Great, I went ahead uh, and typed those into the published Q&A as well. Um, and then a couple of questions here about the study, I think that have partially been answered, wondering is it embedded to use within EPIC? And then a second question came through here, is the study assessment widely used? Um, and maybe just some comments uh, there on our use of study. Yes, so uh, study is embedded in EPIC. Um, it can be typically the medical assistants uh, enter the information into the flow sheet uh, component part of rooming. And then um, fortunately it is viewable under review flow sheets so that as a provider, you can go back through review sheets and, and look over time. Um, I would say that for very, very high risk populations, uh, it isn't, you know, it's <clears throat> potentially going to have some ceiling effect. And it also has not been studied um, to show a clinically meaningful detection of difference, meaning that you can see that a number has gone up or down, but there is not evidence, uh, specific evidence around how an improvement in a score of one means a decrease in fall risk by 20%, for example. Um, so I think that's the first question. And then in terms of its use, um, there really are not a lot of commonly used fall risk assessment tools. A uh, study actually comes out of UCLA. Um, and the other one that is more com also commonly used is the Mach 10 which is out of Missouri, and the home health people use Mach 10 because that's a federally regulated um, and approved tool. Um, there's pros and cons to both of them, but generally the Mach 10, in my opinion, doesn't have a lot of specific uh, information that it provides. So if you're looking at the 
the actual answers to questions. It doesn't tend to um, guide care as much. Um, and, and Jamie can speak to, uh, we've worked hard so that rehab is now using study also. They were using another tool. So some of our efforts have been around sort of steering the gigantic ship of Providence so that we're doing things consistency, consistently and in congruence. Yeah, I was going to say that um, the study is used across all rehab clinics in Oregon and Southwest Washington um, for patients over 65, as well as anyone who's referred to us for gait or balance issues as a diagnosis um, or dizziness as well. So anyone that, you know, could potentially could be at risk to fall. Um, and it, I believe they're all viewable under the review policies. So you could see if your rehab partner had done a recent one as well. Um, it's another place I think we can sort of connect and be team um, team supports of each other by um, doing some of the work together. Great, great. Thanks so much for your thoughts there. Um, and thanks, uh, Jamie, particularly for mentioning some practical information about getting a home safety evaluation done for patients who are not necessarily homebound. Um, and just to be clear, that's a regular outpatient referral and we might if in question consider actually OT as the primary referral as opposed to PT. Um, anything else to add or correct there? No, yeah, that's correct. I think the only caveat to OT would be it's, um, it's a more limited service, um, which, uh, you know, I think hopefully could change if, <laughs> if we're utilizing our OT partners more. But right now, um, you know, all of our 40 clinics have PT, but they don't all have OT. Um, but yes, I would encourage uh, under OT, particularly with cognitive or visual uh, impairments. Great, thanks so much. We're coming close to nine o'clock, so I think I'll pose this next one as our last question for the morning. Um, tying back to that last um, discussion point about falls and frailty, um, we have another question here at the end. How can I best help family of an elderly person understand that not all falls can be prevented? That's a great question and something that, uh, you know, we hear widely from PCPs. I, I think having a um, just an, an honest and compassionate conversation about how, you know, even if you go back to the comorbidity slide where you see that heart failure, even CKD, Parkinson's, I mean, almost any um, significant disease entity that, uh, that disproportionately affects older people um, has falls as a hallmark uh, and, and increased risk. And so if you can have an informed conversation to provide them with knowledge, uh, again, not to be nihilistic and say, oh, there's nothing we can do because often there are things that have been missed and can be done, but to have a conversation that presents it as a longitudinal issue and also presents, presents it in the context of the overall picture. And I think um, asking them to look back a year ago to think about the functional status of their loved one can be something that is semi-objective. I mean, it's perceptive, of course, but it can be a, a good way to really root for them. Um, where was that person a year ago? And if they've declined substantially and falls is now part of that picture, it's really, really appropriate to begin to think about um, falls in the context of possibly a more terminal trajectory, even if that's over the course of several years. Great. Thank you so much for those insights and all of um, your other 
practical and insightful information as well. I know it seems obvious for me personally, thinking about this more as a longitudinal chronic disease and not needing to do everything at once um, is pretty illuminating. So thank you for that. Um, really appreciate both of our speakers and look forward to seeing everybody at Grand Rounds next week. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.